All right, well, let's pray together and we're going to open up God's Word. What a rich time this morning so far, Lord. What, what rich worship. Thank you for how you meet us. And you just show us who you are and you fill us and satisfy us. And you're so good. Thank you for Jesus and the cross and his resurrection and his coming again. Lord, use this message this morning. Use your word this morning to prepare us, to equip us, to comfort and strengthen us. So come and do a mighty work, Lord, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, like I always say, we want you to have a copy that you can look at so that you can study these passages with us. And so raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. We're going through a series in the book of Isaiah, powerful. Uh, We're going to try to cover two to three to four to five chapters a week Um, and read ahead because we're not going to cover every verse by any means, but you can read ahead so you'll get the in-between sections. But I was thinking about the, the chapters we're looking at this morning. Something that just struck me was, you know, we all, there's kind of a fascination that I think every human being has, I'm sure all of you have, kind of a fascination about reading uh, predictions about the future. I remember when I was in high school, this is a long time ago now, but I was just really intrigued with this book by Alvin Toffler called Future Shock. Okay, he made about 10 predictions for the future. Um, there's people who like to read their horoscope every day because there's predictions about your future, supposedly, and that. There's, there's people who avidly study. There's a guy named Nostradamus. Anybody heard of him who's kind of got these cryptic predictions about the future? Everybody's interested in um, predictions about the future. Now, this book that you hold in your hands is full of predictions about the future. Full of them. But what makes this book different from Alvin Toffler's book and horoscopes and Nostradamus is that this book is written by God who has planned the future, who flawlessly knows the future, who's in complete control of the future. And so when there's dozens and dozens of predictions of the future in this book, they all come true. Dozens and dozens have already come true. You can study the prophecies in the Old Testament fulfilled in Jesus. And dozens and dozens more are still to come true. Now the reason I mention that is that in in the chapters 2, 3, and 4 of Isaiah, there's two powerful predictions about Israel's future. And they're not just about Israel, though. They also include you. You're in these predictions about the future. So let's take a look at what uh, Isaiah says. First, First question, what does God say is going to happen in Israel's future? And look at what he writes in Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. By the way, that's page 567 in the Bibles. We just passed out if you've had a hard time finding that. Page 567, Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. Look at what Isaiah writes. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it 
And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Okay, now notice in verse 1, it says, in the latter days. So, when, that's future, obviously. Isaiah wrote this 700 B.C., so here's the coming of Christ, here's 700 years earlier. Isaiah wrote this in 700 B.C., talked about the latter days. A time in the future. Usually that phrase latter days, when you read it in the New Testament, it applies to the time period between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. So we are now in the last days. We are are now in the latter days period. So that's what Isaiah is saying here. And God says that in the latter days, this is amazing, he's going to do something with the mountain of the house of the Lord. Now, see this picture here? See if I can drop this down a little bit. Here's the mountain on which the temple, the temple mount, Mount Zion, is built. And so Jerusalem is a mountain. The temple is built on a mountain. It's on a mountain. That's the picture of Mount Zion right there. And what Isaiah is saying, what God is saying, is that in the latter days, he is going to lift up the mountain of the house of the Lord to be the, the highest in all the earth, above all the hills. And all the nations are going to notice it. And they're going to say, whoa. And they're going to say, come, let's go. We see God's real, God's loving, God's glorious, God's forgiving, God's powerful. Let's go to God so that he can teach us how to be right with him, how to walk in his ways, how to know him. So what Isaiah is predicting, what he's prophesying is that in, in the latter days, God's going to lift up his house, his temple. All the nations are going to see and there's going to be a, a worldwide move of evangelism. All the nations are going to come. Now, this, this doesn't mean that every single person is going to be saved. We'll see that in the next chapter, or in the latter part of chapter 2 as well. But like the language in Revelation says, a multitude that no one could count from every nation, tongue, and tribe will be saved. There's going to be a massive movement of evangelism and salvation taking place. And then, verse 4, he shall judge between the nations. Now I think this is the very end of the, of the latter days when Jesus comes back. He comes back and he judges between the nations. He decides disputes for many peoples. They beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nations. So he causes wars to stop Neither shall they learn war anymore. And he establishes peace, global, forever. So this is is what's going on in this passage. Now, it's like, what does it really mean? Try to get a little more specific. Now, again, it's the latter days we're talking about, which is the time period between the first and second comings of Christ. And something else to keep in mind is that in Galatians 2 and 3, and uh, Romans 11, and a couple other passages, what we read is that when we Gentiles 
put our trust in Israel's Messiah, Jesus. You do know that Jesus is Israel's Messiah, right? And he's ours too. And so when you put your trust in Israel's Messiah, Jesus, at that moment, a number of amazing things happen. One of which is you become part of the seed of Abraham. You become part of God's people. You become part of the true Israel at that point in time. So if you are a Gentile, I am. I think we have some Jewish people here. Okay, we love Jewish people. We love Gentiles. If you're Gentile and you are trusting in Jesus, then you are part of the true Israel. Okay? Also, something else to keep in mind. In the New Testament, what is God's house in the New Testament? What is God's temple in the New Testament? We are. Everywhere, anywhere in the globe, that Jews, Gentiles are trusting Jesus Christ, that group of people is a household of God. It's the temple of God. Okay? So what's going on here is that there will be a spreading throughout the globe, Great Commission, go into all the world. There will be a spreading throughout the globe of, of, of God's people, Household of God, temple of God. God's going to lift them up so that they shine with love. They shine with mercy. They shine with care for the orphans and the widows and the poor. They show Jesus by their love and their care. They speak of Jesus in the gospel and God is going to lift these groups up and the nations, wherever they are, will see and will flood to them and will come and meet the Lord. Now, again, this doesn't mean that every single person is saved. Other passages make that very clear. But there will be a movement from every nation, tongue, and tribe. It also doesn't mean that um, this is going to be easy. Uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, all say that this will be accompanied with ferocious persecution against the church. Right? Revelation? Okay. But what this means is that there will be the advance of the gospel. It's happening right now, but not to the extent we're seeing in this passage, but it's happening. Uh, The leaven will spread through the loaf. The mustard seed will become the largest of all the trees. Right? These are some of the passages that, that say the same thing in different words. And then, when the gospel has been preached to all the nations, Matthew 24, 14, what happens? Jesus comes back. Okay? Judges between the nations, puts a stop to war, establishes global peace, Those who've continued in rebellion against God are judged. We'll read about that in a moment. And eternity begins. Now, here's what I want you to see from this. God loves the world. Do you see that? He's going to save this world. He created this world perfect, beautiful. We have totally screwed it up. And I'm reading Bonhoeffer's biography and just reading about World War II and just the horrifying wickedness that was in Nazi Germany and that's been in my heart too and that's been in your heart too. We've all turned from God and we have plunged this world into sin and darkness and ugliness and God loves this world and he's going to save this world and he's going to spread pockets of Jews, Gentiles trusting in Jesus, lift them up, Nations will come. Salvation will will fill the earth. There will be persecution. There will be war to the very end. Escalation of evangelism. Escalation of persecution. All the nations hearing. People safe from every nation, tongue, and tribe. Jesus will come back. And this world is going to be saved. 
So I just want you to feel from this how much God loves this world. He loves this world. He loves this world. This world is going to be saved. New heavens, new earth, a new earth where righteousness dwells. Okay, now, what would this have meant for Israel at that time if they read it? And Isaiah tells us, the punchline is right there in verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What's he saying? Chapter 1, we saw that the vast majority of Israel was not walking in the light of the Lord. Remember? Chapter 1. The vast majority of Israel had turned their backs on God and had pursued the idols of the nations. They pursued Phoenicia's idols and Babylon's idols and Assyria's idols. And Isaiah is saying, listen, the day is coming when all the nations are going to trash their idols and come to God. Don't go for their idols now. They're going to be trashed one day. They're going to see the foolishness of those idols and come to God. So why don't you trash those idols now and come to God? Let us walk in the light of the Lord. The nations are going to be walking in the light of the Lord. Come, Israel, let us do it now. Okay, so there's 2, 1 through 5. That's the first prediction of Israel's and true Israel's future, okay? Now, at this point, as I, as I looked at the next section, I thought, where's Isaiah going next? I tried to arc this for you guys who do the, do the arcing thing. Where's he going next? What struck me was, I think Isaiah is aware that at this point, his listeners, his readers, because of the sinfulness of Israel, they could draw a wrong conclusion. They could think, man, our future looks awesome. All the nations coming to us, we're going to be like the top dogs. We're going to be lifted up above everything else. You know That must mean that the punishment God warned us about in chapter 1, maybe he's changed his mind. Maybe he really was impressed that we went to church so much. Remember we talked about this last week. okay? And so let's raise the question, does chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 mean that Israel's going to escape from God's punishment? And the answer is no. No. And from chapter 2, verse 6, all the way through to the end of chapter 2, and all of chapter 3, through chapter 4, verse 1, is description of God's judgment. Now, I was talking to Jan about this yesterday, and she always has such helpful, she says, you know, that's, that's kind of a heavy section there. Why don't you give people a little bit of a context of, of, of what's going on? And she's always right, so here's, here's my attempt. Um, I want you to feel... What, what God has done for Israel up to this point. I want you to feel the amazing love and care God's shown for Israel. Remember? Israel was the smallest of all the nations, Ezekiel says. Israel was completely wicked. Abraham was a moon worshiper. He was an idolater. Israel, were, they were wicked and tiny. Okay? And God chose them to be his people on whom he would so lavish his love and care that all the nations would say, God is awesome, we want in. That was God's plan. He chose this tiny, wicked... By the way, Israel is no more wicked than we are. Let me just say that. There is anti-Semitism in the world, which is ugly, and we should hate it. But Israel was totally wicked, just like you and me. Okay? Are we clear on that point? All right. So, God chose Israel. And then he did amazing things for them. They were slaves in bondage in Egypt for 400 years and God brought astonishing signs and miraculous wonders and freed them from 
slavery to Egypt. So imagine 400 years of slavery, we're free, and you're leaving Egypt free for the first time ever. And then they come up against the Red Sea. You know the story. God parts the Red Sea. They go across. Pharaoh's armies come over, comes back over. They're, they're safe. And then for 40 years, in a barren wilderness where there's no water and there's no food, God faithfully provides them for 40 years in this barren wilderness with food and with water and with uh, meat and with manna, Right? So God has just lavished his love and his care upon Israel, his chosen people, his treasure. And how did Israel respond? They just turned their back on God and walked, well, this idol looks interesting, and, and let's worship this idol. And they, they, they burned their babies to some of these God's idols. I mean, it was just, and this is what we've all done too, They've tur- they turned their backs on God, and, and God saw that, and he loved them. And he cared about them. And he sent his prophets to them. Right? And what did Israel do to the prophets? Beat them? Threw them down into mud pits so they would rot? Killed them? Okay, so put this all in context. God is slow to anger and very patient. But things reached a point with Israel and they have with all of us in which if God doesn't punish, he will no longer be just. God does not delight in punishing the wicked. But in his justice, he must. And he does. And so that's the context of this passage. So it's a heavy section. Look at what, I'm just going to pick out a few sections. I'm not going to read through the whole thing. Look at verse 6. Isaiah says, For you, God, have rejected your people the house of Jacob because they're full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Skip down to verses 17 through 19. And the the haughtiness, this is chapter 2, verses 17 through 19, the, the haughtiness, the pride of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. The idols shall utterly pass away. So, the, the, the nation's idols will pass away. Israel's gone after those idols. All these idols are going to pass away. I just want to just throw this out here. Some of you, some of you are worshiping idols. You're not worshiping God as he's revealed in Jesus Christ. You're worshiping money. You're worshiping fame. You're worshiping your career. Those things aren't necessarily wrong, but if you put your security in them, if you seek your satisfaction in them, you, then you are bowing down to them. And what God tells us here is that the idols shall utterly pass away. Every idol is going down. And to cling to an idol, it's like clinging to, to the railing on the Titanic. Okay? When there's, in this case, plenty of lifeboats available. Alright? So the idols are going down. See that. The day is coming when that idol, in this life it's going down, but in the life to come certainly it's going down. That idol will not do what it promises to do for you. Verse 19, people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. This is the justice of God here. And this, I think, is a glimpse of eternity. Jews and Gentiles who've held to their idols and refused to bend the knee before God as he's revealed in his Messiah, Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1, talks about what's going to happen to Israel in the exile. For behold, the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply, all support of bread 
and all support of water. That's exactly what happened 200 years later. During the, the, they were besieged. Jerusalem was, was besieged. Nobody could go in, nobody could go out for weeks, for months. All the food was gone, all the water was gone. It was absolutely horrifying. Cannibalism was taking place. It was just, if you can just get a little feel for that without being absolutely overwhelmed. Verse 8, Israel was not sorry for her sin. She was not repentant. She was defiant in it. Look at verse 8. Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen because their speech and their deeds are against the Lord, defying, defying his glorious presence. We've done the same thing, right? In verse 16, chapter 3, Isaiah starts a section where he hammers the women for, for the prideful way that they flaunt their beauty. Verse 16, the Lord said, because the daughters of Zion, by the way, daughters of Zion, Mount Zion, Jerusalem, daughters of Zion, it's just Israeli women, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, proud, and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet, and look at the, this, the frightening, horrifying punishment that's coming in the exile. This happened. Verse 17, therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the heads of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and there's this long list of all things the Lord's going to take away. Verse 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and then verse 24. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. And branding instead of beauty. And that all happened 200 years later. Now the men aren't guiltless. Verse 25, we see their punishment. Your men shall fall by the sword. Your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and mourn. Empty she shall sit on the ground. And so many men would be killed that the ratio of women to men would be seven to one. Look at verse one of chapter four. Seven men shall take hold of one man in that day saying, we will eat our own bread and wear our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. Okay, that, that just gives you a little bit of a feel of, of the judgment that is coming to those in Israel who continue to hold to their idols and Gentiles who continue to hold to their idols as well. Now, why would God go into so much graphic, painful to read detail about the punishment that's coming? If you, if you really feel what's going on here, this is just painful. It kind of should make you a little bit ill to read what's being described here. So why would God go into so much detail? It's because he loves Israel. He loves Israel. He's pleading with Israel. This is what's coming. Come, walk in the light of the Lord. Come, walk in the light of the Lord. This is what's going to come. So walk in the light of the Lord. God's just and he must punish. Okay, now, so here's what we've got. Chapter 2, 1 through 5. 
Latter days, God's going to raise up his house, his temple, his people, and shine his love and forgiveness and mercy in the Messiah through them to the nations, and the nations are going to come, and there's going to be this, this flood of harvest, people meeting the Lord. Doesn't mean Israel's going to escape judgment. Doesn't mean all the Gentiles are going to be saved. There will be judgment starting in chapter 2, verse 6, end of chapter 2, all of chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 1. God will bring punishment on those who continue to hold to their idols. And we get this graphic picture of how sinful Israel was in these verses. So here's, I think, the next question that Isaiah knows could come up to his readers. If Israel is that sinful, chapter 2, verse 6 through chapter 4, verse 1, if Israel is that sinful, how is Israel ever going to be raised up and shine with God's salvation to the world? How is that ever going to happen? Right? If they're that sinful, how is that going to happen? Now, some of you might think, well, no problem. Some of you who are like more optimistic, they'll just like change. They'll just like, like change and come back to God. It's easy, right? No, it's not that easy because of what's true about you and about me and about them. We've all got a sinful nature Nature. We don't just sin occasionally. The Bible teaches that we are sinners by nature. Now, if you've been born again, then you've got a new nature. We're going to come to that in a moment. But before that point in time, just like Israel was in their unbelief, sin natures. And you can see this in Israel. I mean, here they are miraculously freed from Egypt. Signs and wonders and God's love and God's faithfulness. And they head out and just a couple of hours later, they're facing the Red Sea and they're like what? God brought us out here to kill us. Right? A couple of hours after seeing amazing signs and wonders. It's like, what's God doing? And then he parts the Red Sea and they go across. And a couple of hours later, what are they grumbling about? There's no water here. He brought us out so we die of thirst. So, in their hearts, and if you're honest, in, in your hearts, if you haven't been saved yet, you, you can really feel that. If you have been saved, you can still feel remnants of it from time to time. Because it won't be totally gone until glory, right? But isn't there something in you, if you're honest, that's this dark just animosity towards the idea of bending my knee towards a superior? I want to call the shots. I want to be in control. I don't want to bow before anyone, thank you. Right? And of course, talking about, you know, bow for other people, we're talking about God! God! I mean, you can just hardly even see the top of his toe there. I mean, he's just like, God, right? Uh, I don't, don't want to, no. I'll take care of stuff myself. Okay, so you see the problem? All right, it's in nature. Now, how will sinful Israel with that kind of a nature ever bring salvation to the world? This next section is beautiful. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. In that day, the branch of the Lord. Now, if you've read some Old Testament prophets, you're thinking, oh, the branch. I know. I know who that is. We'll come back to that in a moment. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. Okay, who's the branch of the Lord? Now follow, follow this. Look at Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Who's the branch of the Lord? Isaiah 11, verse 1. I don't want you to take my word for it. Isaiah 11, 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, 
different Hebrew word, exact same idea though, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So this, this branch that Isaiah is talking about is someone in the line of Jesse. Who is Jesse's son? David. Okay? All right. So the line of Jesse, and he'll be a, a branch. And then if you look at the beginning of verse 2, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Keep that in mind. Very important. The spirit of the Lord rests upon him. The spirit of the Lord rests upon him. Now, Luke chapter 4. Jesus walks into a synagogue. It's one of my all-time favorite passages in the Bible. He walks into a synagogue. And as they usually do, they ask, you know, teachers who are well-known to, to read the scripture for the day. And they ask Jesus, would you read us this morning's scripture? He said, sure. So they hand him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. And he opens up the scroll to Isaiah 61. And here's what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He reads a couple more verses and rolls it up. He says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. See what he's saying? He is the branch on whom the spirit of the Lord rests. And he is, by the way, the great, 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 great grandson of who? Jesse. Okay? So this is the branch. Chapter 4, verse 2. Jesus is the branch. So with that in mind, just read this verse again. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land, commentators differ, that's probably another reference to Jesus, shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And now verse 3. He who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem. What does it mean to be called holy? A lot of ways to put it, but it means that you are set apart for God as he's revealed in Jesus. You're set apart because of God's worth, his glory, his majesty, his love, his wisdom, his power, his goodness. You're set apart from trusting anything else to trust him alone. And so that's what it means for them to be holy. And now we just read about Israel in chapters 2 and 3. How did they come to be holy? How did that happen? Verse 4. This will all happen when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. How do they come to be holy? How do they come to be cleansed and washed? It's because God washes them. God cleanses them. By the work of the Holy Spirit. I think the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning is the Holy Spirit burning out the old sinful nature, the old man, and implanting in us new nature. A brand new heart, heart of flesh, takes out the heart of stone, puts in the heart of flesh. And the reason that the Holy Spirit can do that is because of the the work of the branch. So here's how this works. Try to, try to weave some things together. Isaiah 53, we're going to come there down the road, months down the road. Uh, we read about what the Messiah, the branch, does. He dies for our sins. Tr- truly our sins he himself bore and, and our suffering he carried. 
right? Jesus died on the cross and was punished for sin. And because he was punished for our sin, God can bring the power of the Holy Spirit upon us and burn out the old nature and implant a new nature, make you holy. You don't become perfect, okay, yet. That's end of, end of history when you die. But you are changed. You have a new nature. You used to get all excited about like the giants, you know, and sex and food and Sam Adams and, you know, friends and, you know, making lots of money. And that was all your joy. And nothing wrong with those things necessarily. But now all of a sudden you, you love God as he's revealed in Jesus more than anything. You love him. He is your pleasure. He's your delight above everything else. Where did that come from? God hasn't changed. He's always been there. What changed? Your heart changed. God took out the heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh. He burned out the old nature. He implanted a new nature. You love Jesus now more than anything else. That's how you can tell you've been born again. And so now you're holy and your name is written. Did you catch that? End of verse 3. Everyone who's been recorded for life in Jerusalem. I think that's a reference to the Lamb's book of life in the book of Revelation. Okay, so your eternity is secured. Jesus died, paid for your sins. When you repent and put your trust in Jesus, through faith, your heart is changed, born again, old nature put to death, new nature given. You're changed, you're not perfect, but you're substantially changed in a growing way. And your name is recorded in the, in the book of life. Your future is secured in Christ forever. How? The branch. The branch. The Messiah. Then look at verses 5 and 6. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night for over all the glory There will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. So commentators really wrestle with what all is going on here. And there's just a couple things that are really clear to me. There's a lot I'm not sure about. But it's that God will bring his presence upon his people like the pillar of smoke and fire in the book of Exodus, right? That's clearly an allusion to that, right? Okay? And God will shine upon us with his glory Over all the glory, there will be a canopy. And then there will be this booth for shade by day. I mean, if you were, you know, lived in Israel, hot sun beating down, harvest, they'd have little booths that they'd build out there where they could go and grab some shade. You know how wonderful shade is when you're hot and you don't have your hat on and you don't have much hair. You love that shade, okay? And for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. So the, the, the question we're asking is, how can sinful Israel become a people like described in chapter 2, 1 through 4, where God lifts them up and shines who he is through them so the nations say, we want that. Let's come. How can Israel, sinful Israel, be changed in that way? How can sinful you and me become part of that true people of Israel? And the answer is through the branch. Okay, It's not by you trying to make yourself good enough in your own power. It's by you looking at the branch, receiving from the branch, trusting the branch, obeying the branch, the Messiah, Jesus. When you trust Jesus, all your sins are paid for by his death on the cross, all of them. 
you are cleansed. There is a washing and a cleansing. There's a supernatural washing and cleansing that happens at the point of conversion where you're changed. Your heart is different. Again, you don't become perfect. Don't misunderstand me, but I want to I I push this one a little bit. There's a supernatural change that takes place when you're saved. You are born again. Was your first birth a significant change? Yes. How much of a change would there be to be born again? Big change. Your heart's changed. I never loved Jesus before. I love him. Look at him. I love you, Jesus. I want to worship you, know you, obey you, trust you, rely on you, glorify you forever. You're changed. You're holy. You're called holy. Isn't this cool? We're called saints in the New Testament, right? You know what the Greek word for saints is? Holy ones. I wish we would just translate it holy ones. Saints have all kinds of weird pictures in your mind. Get those out. Holy ones. Every believer in the New Testament is this. Who does Paul write his letters to? The saints. The saints. You are saints. You are saints. You are, if you're trusting Jesus, you're saints. You're called holy. You're not perfect. Saints aren't perfect. Saints trust Jesus, have been changed, are being changed, relying on him. Saints, you're saints, you're called holy, and your name is written in the book of life. Your future is secured through the cross forever, and then God pours his presence out upon you. And then as we gather together with other brothers and sisters and love each other and encourage each other, love the Lord Jesus, his presence will shine from us, his love will be seen in us. As we serve them, they will see his goodness, and as they hear the gospel shared through our words, they will come to Christ, and chapter 2, 1 through 4 will happen. So there you go, chapters 2, 3, and 4. Now, I really struggle with, so, like, what's the Holy Spirit saying to us in this this morning? There's so many directions I could go here. And, uh, well, let me first, before we get there, any questions that's like, I just don't get something from this that you were saying. Any, any, cause you were talking about end times, you're talking about, you know, like eschatology, how things are going to unfold towards the end. This may really rock your boat a little bit. Any, any questions? Well, the way that I can tell when I'm loving something and it's becoming an idol of love is when I desire it more than Jesus and I fear losing it more than losing Jesus. That's how I can tell. I love mountain bike riding. I really do. I just, I love it. I, I love it. And there's been times where I've made an idol out of it. Okay, I've done it too much and hurt my knee. Um, but there's nothing wrong with mountain bike riding. I mean, I think Jesus, he would have loved it too, you know, if he had a mountain bike. Well, it's a huge question. You know, why do I want it? What's the point here, you know? And I think mountain bike riding is a gift from him. Harley is a gift from him. You say, Lord, thank you. And you're, you're a black sheep group, you know, and you're advancing the gospel through that. And Right, so... I mean, same thing with food, same thing with sex, same thing with friends. Any of these things can become an idol. They're all gifts from God. But anything can become an idol. And the only way I can tell is, what am I desiring most? What am I most happy about right now? What am I most looking forward to right now? Is it riding the Harley? Or is it loving Jesus? And there'll be times where it's riding the Harley, I would imagine for you. And just like for me, it's mountain bike riding. And you just got to deal with it. Say, well, that's stupid. That's going down one day. Don't, you know. Another question. Will there be mountain bikes in heaven? I don't know. But if they're not, I'm not going to even notice if they're not. I don't even be asking that question. Okay? Are you kidding me? Look at him! What did I used to do? I was kind of fun, but look! Right? Okay. Whew. Trouble here. Okay. Maybe we should stop the questions. How are you doing? (laughs) 
and yet there's it a little bit easier, okay? But any, anything like, does this make sense? Um, does it trouble you to think that there's going to be a global evangelism and that a large number that no one can count, does that, does that make you think like, is that really, I mean, is that trouble you? Because sometimes we can think there's just going to be so few people saved, it's like the vast majority of the world is going to be lost, and that's just Isaiah, I'm not sure what the proportions are going to be, Isaiah doesn't say that, but it's going to be a large movement of conversion at the end, along with terrible persecution against the church. No linking of church and state in this thing, okay? His kingdom is not of this world, so no linking of church and state anywhere there. No hijacking of a political party that's, that's, that's taking over the world. No. Politics is important. Vote on Tuesday, please, Okay? But Jesus' kingdom is much more important. And our, our joys do not go up and down depending on whether your person was voted in or not. It's, it's not that big of a deal. It's big. We could talk about that too. Abortion's a very big issue. Heartbreaking issue. Politics was big in World War II when, when Hitler came into place. So politics isn't unimportant. But it's not anywhere near as important as the kingdom. And the gospel will advance. And Jesus is going to save the world. Okay. It's a good question. And I, I did look at that in the commentators. And most of them say the prophets are not precise on timing. Right? They're looking ahead. In fact, any of you heard the illustration? It's like if you look at Mount Hamilton, you know, towards the east here, you can see it there. And then if you look really close, you can see this little line of another little ridge right here. But it looks like they're like really, really close. Right? But if you drove up to that first ridge, it's like, oh my goodness, there's this big old valley, and then Mount Hamilton. But from, and so I've heard people say, and I think it's helpful, is that, that the prophets looked ahead, and by the inspiration of the Spirit, this is as much as he gave them, but they, they, they could juxtapose events together that are separated. And from, from the, when we get there, we see that they're separated, but they can put them together. And so it's hard to draw clear chronology from... Words like, in that day. In what day? In that day. Well, how's that day compared to the last day? Isaiah's not telling. He may not, right? So does that make sense? Okay. Good question, though. That's kind of... All right, so how do we apply this? And we could apply this in a dozen ways. We could, I mean, think about being missional. We could think about, you know, how big is your God? Do you understand that, that God is in total control of history? That history is, you've heard people say this, it's His story. It really is. I mean, God is, is on the move. He's in sovereign control. The gospel is going to advance to every tongue and tribe. There's lots of ways we could go with this. Some, some of you may need to think about the fact that that sin that you are um, defeated by can be cleansed by Jesus Christ. He can cleanse you from that. You, you do not need to walk in defeat. Now, I want to nuance this a little bit. That doesn't mean you'll be free from temptation. It doesn't mean that you'll never stumble again. But you don't need to walk in constant defeat in any area of sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. Okay, that's just a good verse to buffer that. And... Have you brought that area of sin to the Lord Jesus 
in confession and repentance before him? Or have you just said, man, I've, got to, I've just got to work on this. I've got to stop doing this. See, that's not how you get cleansed. You only get cleansed by bringing it to Jesus. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. Now, part of that may involve what Faith shared last week, confessing it to a brother. James 5, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so you may be healed. Right? The word is a crucial part of that. Finding the promises in God's word that put the lie to the promises behind that temptation and memorizing those and meditating on them because faith comes by hearing God's word. Lots more we could say about this, but you do not need to walk in defeat because the branch cleanses you and washes you from sin without thinking that means you become perfect. So you may need to hear that. You may, you may be just defeated by an area of sin and have bought the lie that that could not change, that you're the exception. Not true. Just one other application, the one that hit me. Verse 6, he's a refuge. You're cleansed, holy, he's your refuge. Friday, I just, around 11 o'clock in the morning, I just started to get really sad. Uh, and just really discouraged. And... Uh, there's kind of a pity party and just a sadness about a couple situations. It just grew Friday. Um, I told Jan about it at dinner and I knew she was praying for me. And, and I just want to tell you, God is your refuge. Where do you go for refuge? Where do you turn at those times? What do you do? Is Jesus Christ your refuge? Really, I mean, really. So I, I just went out. Well, I, there's a creek by our house. I walked by our creek, and and the verse that the Lord used was, "I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from?" Psalm 121. My help comes from you, Maker of heaven. You're the Maker of heaven. You can help me. <laughs> you made the heavens and the earth. You can help me. And He did. He did. Um, did something great on Saturday. I'd been praying for for a long time. Part of this was some areas of prayer where I hadn't seen answers for a long time. And an answer came Saturday. Um, anyway, who's your refuge? Is it Jesus? He is your refuge. He will be your refuge. But you've got you to gotta go into the refuge to have it be a refuge. Right? You've got to go in. you got to... Can I come in? Oh yes, I'm glad you're here. Come in. So let's stand. I want to pray for us. Thank you, Branch, Messiah Jesus, that you cleanse us, you change us, make us holy, we're born again, you pour your presence out upon us, you're a refuge to us, you're going to work through us, shine your light through us so that the nations see, hear, Come, this is all about you. We love you, Branch, Root of Jesse, Jesus Christ, we love you. I pray that you would take these three chapters now and those who need confidence in your cleansing power, that you'd strengthen their faith right now. Have them really turn to you and meet you in this. Those who have a very small view of you and who have a very pessimistic perspective on the, the progress of the gospel, 
that they would have their minds blown by chapter 2, 1 through 4. Lord, those who don't know what it is to experience you as their refuge, that, that they would, that they could turn to you. Thank you. You are our refuge, Lord. So I pray that you would, by the power of your Spirit, right now, so many different needs here in this room, so many different heart conditions and issues, but Holy Spirit, you're here. This is your word. Apply it in all the different ways it's needed, I pray, for the glory of your name. Thank you for your word. Thank you for meeting us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.